tonight would be the book of Zechariah. Did anyone read it? (laughs) Part of it? It's strange, isn't it? (laughs) It's pretty strange stuff. Um, But please understand that Zechariah is telling you what he saw. Alright? That's something that you mustn't lose contact with. That he's a guy like you and he's seeing these things. So, he's as bemused as you are, he's as in the dark as you are, unless there's some kind of interpretative framework that he can use to understand it. And there is. There is. And actually, even though the visions are kind of strange, um, in another way, they are explained. So, we're not going to go through the whole book, of course, but I'm going to pick things out that go in, uh, sorry, that, that kind of connect in with the uh, covenant threads that we've been studying in this course. He's a 6th century prophet. And uh, he uh, is concerned, of course, or usually is connected with the rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel. But there's much more to Zechariah than that. And if you are, if you're a liberal scholar, that's the only thing you'll see in the book. And then what you'll do with all of these visions and so on is that you'll call it apocalyptic. But you won't take it seriously as peering into the future and following the same lines prophetically that we have been looking at through these two courses. When you just allow it to complement what we've already seen the Bible say, there is really not too much of a problem with things. Yes, there's some added information. Because there's always added information. There's filling out of a picture or there's looking at things from a different angle or there is an underlining of something important. Um, And yet, the themes are the same. So let's have a look here at some of the things. Did we go into this at all last week or did I? No, we didn't. All right. So let me see. Um... You, you know that he sees these, um, he sees eight visions and he sees these horses. Okay? And a man is there, verse 10, who's standing in the myrtle trees, saying, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth. Okay. So what do they do? Yeah, they walk to and fro throughout the earth. That's what they do. You say, well, yeah, but they're weird. I mean, they're... they're Yeah, well, they may be. But that doesn't mean they're not real. Now, they may not be. It may just be visionary, as in uh, figurative, you know, like in Amos, the plumb line and things like that. 
Or, but it may be, and I think it's probably uh, right to think, that they are literal spiritual beings. I mean, we saw some pretty weird ones in Ezekiel. They're not figurative, they're real. There's no reason to think that these spirits are not real spirits. But normally you wouldn't see them. Now we do know that there are spiritual horses. Elisha saw a bunch of them, didn't he? Yeah. So, they say, verse 11, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. So they are patrolling, they're reporting back. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, so you can see the angel of Yahweh, that's the word there, is talking to who? Yahweh. Do you see that? How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these 70 years? The Lord answered the angel who talked to me, with good and comforting words. That's the key to the book. That's the key question. Jerusalem is lying in ruins. Um, There's been the captivity in Babylon. The temple has been broken down. The city has been broken down by the Babylonians a generation before. And so the answer comes back well, I've had enough of them. We're just we're going to move on to the church now. No, the answer comes back with good and comforting words. Good and comforting words that you would expect because of what you've read already in the prophets. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. So Zechariah is now the human instrument for proclamation. I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. Well, then who who are the nations at ease? They're the ones that the patrol has reported back upon. Yes, everyone's at ease. But what's happened to Jerusalem? That's not at ease, do you see? For I was a little angry, but and they helped but with evil intent. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house, what's that? The temple, shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem to rebuild it, obviously. Um He says, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. Now, there are two ways that we can take this. And you can take it either way. Uh, there's a more hesitant way, which would be perfectly all right. The more hesitant way is that figuratively, in the sense that God is with those that are returning, God is returning with them, providentially. Yes? To Jerusalem. Or there's another way eschatologically, you know what I mean by eschatologically? The end times and so on. He's returning to Jerusalem that way. If he's returning the second way, then what he says in 
the second part of the verse, the second refrain, my house shall be built, again in it, is connected with his returning. Do you see that? And if that's the case, then you should think about Ezekiel 43. Because Ezekiel was shown a temple and the Lord did return to it. Do you see that? Now, again, I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm saying that, that we, it's probably better to just kind of hold off judgment on that. But let's just read a little bit further, see if we can get more of a, an idea of this. Again, proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. All right. Is that what happened when Zerubbabel showed up and Ezra? Is that what happened with Nehemiah? Comforting? Have you read Nehemiah? Wasn't a lot of comfort going on there. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't sound, unless this is hyperbole, which would be completely inappropriate, um, he's not talking here about Zerubbabel and that temple. He's talking about the time that's already been prophesied before, in fact, since Deuteronomy 30, the blessing upon Israel, the, uh, Israel dwelling in safety. But, again, if we want to hold off, that's, that's perfectly fine. Um, that's okay to do that. But choosing Jerusalem, there's, there's much more to that than, uh, yeah, I'm going to allow them to rebuild it, even though um, Sam Ballot is going to give them a, a pain in the neck. Okay, That's not really choosing Jerusalem. Choosing Jerusalem is separating Jerusalem as being the place where God will dwell. Notice what he said, I've been zealous, I've been angry. There's emotion there in God. But let's continue. So you got these craftsmen, four horns and four craftsmen, which is again weird. But let's just have a quick look at it. Then I raised my eyes and looked and there were four horns. And I said, to the angel who talked with me, what are these? That's a very good question. He didn't try and interpret them without help. So he answered me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. Well, horns are that usually power or kings. You saw that in Daniel. Yeah, the horns of the animals were kings. So that's probably what's going on here. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. All right, jolly good. Wish them well. I mean, we're not... We're not really given an awful lot of light there on that, apart from the fact that if the horns are kings, the craftsmen, what does the craftsman envisage? Carpentry and, and building and construction and all, uh, yeah, erecting something. Did you see? 
So scattering is destroying and, and decimating. Craftsmen come in when you're ready to build. You, you know, don't call craftsmen in if you, you know, your, your house is just a pile of rubble, do you? I mean, it's not ready for them. So, the, the idea here in the vision is that God is not through with Jerusalem. They are scattered, but he's not through with them. Verse, uh, chapter 2. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Well, Ezekiel saw one of those. And I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him. I mean, there is, there is um, conversations and there are communication going on in the angelic realm, and he's seeing this. who said to him, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. That's good news. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her. I will be the glory in her midst. Look at that. Underline it. I will be the glory in her midst. Have you got a different kind of a translation there? Right. Look at verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst. Not midst, midst, says the Lord. Does he mean this is some kind of ethereal, you know, come by our way? Or does he mean this in a much more Old Testament, God's actual presence there way? You know which way I'm leaning here, okay? But I'm biased, but that's the way that I'm leaning here. Look what he says in verse uh, 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Now, that's an important verse to remember because Israel, Zion, Jerusalem is the apple of God's eye. Um, remember Hosea in this connection. Why, why is Hosea, Hosea helpful here? Think of the first chapters of Hosea. Well, he marries a harlot. The harlot goes and do, does what harlots do. And then he gets, takes the harlot back. That's an illustration of God's love for Israel. Do you see? And the apple of God's eye, they've sinned. That's why Jerusalem is decimated. And yet God is clearly, his emotion, his affection is unaltered. 
It's very important that we understand that because when we get out to the New Testament, we're all, you know, getting into the church and everything. We can forget about that. Don't forget. God's not going to say that in Zechariah, circa 500 BC, 520 BC, and forget that he said that in 33 AD. We're coming to the end of the Old Testament now. It's the same song all the time. Verse 11, Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. Does that mean, is this a prophecy of the church? Maybe this is where you're... you're your covenant theologian will say, ah, yeah, well, that's what the church does, you see. It has Israel, Jews in it, and he has Gentiles in it, and people from all over the nations. Pay attention. They shall become my people, and I will dwell in your, your midst. They and your. There's a separation there, do you see? Then you will know that I, that, sorry, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, Zechariah, to you. Well, when's this going to happen? When all of these people become the people of God? Yeah, but Zechariah will be dead by that time. So what's the point in knowing that the Lord has sent him? Well, because he's a prophet. And you test a prophet by whether his prophecies come true, do you see? And the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land. Yeah, you didn't think it was in the Bible, did you? But there it is. And will again choose Jerusalem. Well, he's just said he's going to choose Jerusalem. And he's going to choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Okay. Um, let's look at a couple of uh, Psalms here. Let's look at um, Psalm 49, verse 6. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of riches. What's that got to do with this verse? Absolutely nothing. I don't even know why I wrote that in there. There you go. Have you ever done that? You know, you, you're reading the Bible and you have this spark of inspiration that comes to you. So that reminds me of that over there. And you write down this cross-reference. And then you go back to it and you think, what on earth was I thinking? That's got nothing to do with that. Maybe I wrote down the wrong address, which is typical. Yes. So, I don't know whether I should do the next one I've written down here. Because um, it might be just as ridiculous. I'm going to check before I tell you to, to go to it. All right, here we go. Um, yeah, I've yeah, I've, I've no idea what I was doing there. I'm sure, I'm sure, with a with the right hermeneutic, I could make it work. But for the time being, let's just put it down to a senior moment on my behalf and just ignore that I said that. Instead, 
Um, I want you to notice that this this insistence of I will dwell in your midst, Judah is, uh, the Lord will take possession of Judah, his inheritance. He will choose Jerusalem. My house, 116, <coughs> okay, I am coming. All of this is eschatological language. And it does fit. Now, you might not want to put it there. You might want to uh, you know, hang in suspense here, which is fine. But it does fit what we've seen in Isaiah through, well, to this place. But certainly Isaiah through to Ezekiel and then uh, some places in Micah and Amos and Hosea that we've looked at. Let's look at chapter 3. Now, chapter 3, obviously, you know this. It's about Joshua the high priest, and it gets a bit weird. But I, I, I point it out to you, because in verse 2, again, Satan is, re, is rebuked, and how does the Lord rebuke him? The Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Re, rebuke you. Why would he say that if he hasn't chosen Jerusalem? Or if chosen Jerusalem didn't mean any more than yeah, at the present time I'm having good feelings towards Jerusalem but give me 500 years and I'll have enough of them. Yeah? Look at verse 8. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant the branch. Now, there's the branch mentioned in Jeremiah 26 and Jeremiah um, 33. Mentioned, it's a different Hebrew word, but mentioned also in Isaiah chapter 11. The branch. This is Messiah. The, the Hebrew words, by the way, are Netzer and Shemak, and they basically are synonymous. So there's no big deal here about the, uh, the two different Hebrew words. But the branch, now this straight away should trigger some thoughts about, um, well, when the branch comes, then things are going to change. I mean, he's going to bring righteousness and justice and peace and blessing and productivity, isn't he? And salvation. This is not Zerubbabel's time. This is looking into the consummation of things. For behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Well, we should be used to things having eyes now that shouldn't have eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. Well, I've no, fair enough. If you want to have a stone with eyes, and then if you're God, I suppose you can do that. I'm not really sure what that means. And the commentators, you know, have different views. But, as far as the general tenor of what's being said is concerned, that's pretty clear. God is going to save and bless Israel. And notice who is the figure that's being addressed. What's his role? He's the high priest. 
in order for him to be the high priest at this time in Israel's history, what line would he have to come from? Yes, the Zadokite line. Do you see? I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In one day. And now I see my error. I didn't mean Psalm 49, I meant Isaiah 49. Just sometimes, do you do that when your eyes look like peas? And then your... Yeah, because it's then it's ISA, you see, and PSA. So that's what I've done. All right? So I'm not as crazy as you might have thought that I am. Uh, I'm going to redeem myself in just a second. But if you'll go now to Psalm, no, to Isaiah 66, 8. Yes, I'll get it right in a minute. Isaiah 66, 8. And somebody read that for me. Zeke, you got it? Yeah. Right, sorry. Alright. No, that's it. A nation being brought forth in one day after travail. Well, obviously this is the giving birth to, a, to the nation of Israel in a sense of a rebirth. Because Israel's already there. Do you see that? And in, if you look at the context there, it's, it's New Covenant context. Alright. Um, Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6, rather than Psalm 49 verse 6, has got nothing to do with this. Isaiah 49 verse 6. I'm, I've got high hopes for this. It says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Okay. This is, a, this is the servant, the branch. Here, look, see, my servant. Do you see that? Three, eight, my servant. There's an Isaiah servant song, and it's about the salvation, not just of Israel, but also of the nations. And that would connect also, that, that's connecting with 2.11. Do you see? 2.11. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. Do you see that? Okay, now I'm flush with success. We're going to move to Isaiah 62, 1 and 2. Listen to this. For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace. For Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns, the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. And it goes on, it's beautiful. 
and it talks about your land will uh, be no longer be forsaken, verse 4, um, or you won't be, and your land won't be desolate. You'll be called Hepzibah, your land will be called Beulah because the Lord delights in you. And the language of marriage is there, which recalls Hosea 2. It connects together, doesn't it? All right, let's have a look at our covenantal uh, scheme of things here. What have we got here in this uh, passage that we've looked at? Well, we do, but tell me what some of the things that, have, that we've, we've seen. Okay. Uh, Jerusalem is going to be chosen again. Okay, the house, my house. God will come. To dwell, that's important. Um, The nations will become God's people. All right. Let's tie some covenants to these things. So what's this one? Concerns Jerusalem, which is in the land. Davidic, Davidic you are right. Why, why is he right? It's the city, of David. It's the city that, that the king reigns, yes. So it's Davidic covenant, but it's also what else? Well, all, all, yeah, the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, and the Abraham, I'll say AC um, 1, because it has to do with the land. No, AC 3. No. <sighs> what should I do? I'll just call it the Abrahamic Covenant. No, it's a, uh, you know, confuse everybody. But it's the land aspect of the Abrahamic Covenant. Okay? But yes, very good, Zeke. It was uh, the Davidic Covenant. New Covenant is good, but it's too all-encompassing. My house, which one's that? That's the priestly covenant, okay? God is coming to dwell. What's that? Well, it would involve, in a sense, the house, but only in a tangential sense. Yes, it would. It would. God is coming to dwell with them in a, in a relational way. And the nations become God's people. What's that one? Very good. Thank you. Zeke is really on fire tonight. Why is it, why is it the, Abrahamic, the Abrahamic covenant there? Why? How can that be the Abrahamic Covenant and that be the Abrahamic Covenant? Um, because of uh, Isaiah 49.6. Yes, but that's New Covenant language. So you lose a point. 
because it's new covenant language. You got to, you said Abrahamic covenant. What is it that's in the Abrahamic covenant? And you kind of get a, uh, you weren't in the first class, so you're kind of okay. That's it. That's it. The Abrahamic covenant has three, you get your point back. Um, Three prongs, okay, to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, Um, descendants of Abraham first, land, okay, and then through you all the nations will be blessed. Don't confuse them or you'll end up a covenant theologian. A replacement theologian, if you confuse those three things. Okay? That's why that can be part of the Abrahamic covenant and that can be part of the Abrahamic covenant. And all of them this is new covenant here. Why is it why did I put a T up there? I don't know. All of them are new covenant realities. Do you see that? And who's right at the centre of this? The branch. The servant. That's why the Bible is Christological. Not because you can piously read him into every nook and cranny in the Bible. He's there, but let him come out when he wants to come out. Okay? Because when he emerges from the pages of Scripture, he emerges in this amazing way that makes him not just central sermonically, but he is central theologically in in the sense of, um, well, we might say philosophically, he's centre. Because he's he's central to uh, the knowledge of salvation, epistemologically. He's central to the environment, if you like, the change in the world and so on, metaphysically. And is he, I think he's safe to say that he's central to the ethical change in the world too. It's a worldview shift, but it's the worldview shift to the only worldview that should ever obtain. But Christ is at the centre of it. You see? This is why Christ, you can't make him somebody who just uh, shows up occasionally in worldview studies and then, you know, you show him the door again. You've got to make him central. Because the Bible does. He's the one who ties all this stuff together. Chapter 4. The angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I'm looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it and on the stand seven lamps and with seven pipes on the seven lamps. It's like a menorah, okay? Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by my might, 
sorry, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this can be, um, again, this is another thing that can be interpreted two ways. Because the rubble is the one who's going to come back and um, build the temple, in fact, rule, rule in Jerusalem, is this just saying to Zerubbabel then, yeah, you're coming back, you're not a very impressive bunch of people, but you're going to come back and I'll be with you. And you'll build because my spirit will be with you. Could be, could be. But Zerubbabel is, a, is an Old Testament Israelite. And he's not thinking the way a lot of 21st century preachers are thinking. He's thinking in line with God's calling Israel, the Abrahamic covenant. He's thinking about the Exodus. He's thinking about the deliveries of God. He's thinking about David. He's thinking about all of these amazing things and God's covenant faithfulness. That's what he's thinking about. And because God is a covenantally faithful God, they are coming back from Babylon. And yet, it's not really that spectacular, is it? Let's face it. Um, is, this the, is this the covenant thing? Is this what it's all about? Well, well it mentions the Spirit of God here. In a... Not by might, not by power. It's a good job because they didn't have much might and power. They were coming back because the uh, king of Medo-Persia was allowing them back. He's the one with all the power. But by my spirit. Well, if the spirit is going to restore Israel then maybe this passage is actually saying to Zerubbabel don't expect it to happen now but do expect me to be faithful to what I have promised to Israel when my spirit will come upon them and it will I will make you the head and not the tail when I will bless your land when I will save you as my people. That's the Spirit's doing, according to Deuteronomy 30 and according to uh, what's Isaiah 11. and um, I'm trying to think of the verses here. Um, Isaiah 61 and Hosea 2, I think, mentions the Holy Spirit. And a number of passages, the uh, Jeremiah salvation passages, and then Ezekiel 36 mentions the Spirit of God. New Covenant passages, folks. Those are all New Covenant passages. They're salvation passages. If I'm right, I might not be, but if I'm right, what would crop up in, in Zerubbabel's mind here would not necessarily be oh yeah, we're going back and we're going to rebuild the kingdom and so on. It's going to be glorious. But, yeah, it's not that fantastic right now, but we know that one day the Spirit of God will raise Israel up because he's promised and he's covenantally faithful. 
Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. I don't really know what that's on about, but um, I think it's, it's saying that God will be with Zerubbabel and that there are obstacles with it and yet there will be help from God. But I still think that in this context, and I'm going to move on and show you, there's an eschatological significance to this. Let's move on here and, and let me try and uh, show you why. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, this is verse 8, the hands of the rubble have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? That's a great, a great reminder even to us when God doesn't seem to be doing very much. For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Okay, so the seven eyes that are in that stone, remember? That's now what, what they are. So don't worry about the stone so much and just think about the fact that it has to do, it symbolizes God's knowledge of what's going on in the world. Now, it's, the eyes are in a stone. They're not in a beast. They're in a stone. What does that tell you about God's knowledge? What God sees. He doesn't just see the movements of creatures. God sees everything. Okay, the motion of the waves, the, the erosion of uh, the weather patterns on the rock and so on. He sees everything. That's what this is, I think, describing. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles? Now we haven't heard about the olive branches of the two gold pipes from which the gold, golden oil drains. Well, we hadn't been told about that. Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. They were now, anointing is usually for a king, but also prophets were anointed. Remember, Elijah anointed Elisha. Do you remember that? Prophets are anointed. So these are probably two prophets. Elijah says, uh, as the Lord God lives before whom I stand. And here you have these two anointed ones standing before the Lord of the whole earth. Why is he called the Lord of the whole earth here? Because of the seeing stone here. He is the Lord of the whole earth. The whole planet now, he's not ruling on it, don't get me wrong, but he's the Lord of it. He upholds it. 
So is this only to do with Zerubbabel? Well, is it, there's certainly uh, hope for Zerubbabel in what's been said here. But then you've got an interpretation of these two um, trees as the anointed ones and they're not explained. Who on earth are they? You're not told until the book of Revelation. It's kind of strange. All right. If that's not weird enough, stones with eyes in them, chapter 5 gets really strange. But it's also quite simple. Again, the only question that we have to figure out here is, is it talking about what's going on in Zechariah's time or is it talking about the future? Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll, as you do. And he said to me, what do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. This is a big scroll. Then he said to me, this is the curse which goes out over the face of the whole earth. Well, this is a big deal then, isn't it? This is a really big deal. When God talks about a curse on the whole earth, he's not talking small fry here. He's not talking little, you know, impact. He's talking something big. So we need to pay attention. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. All right, fair enough. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. So he hasn't sent it out yet in Zechariah's time. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the ones who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. We're not told what this is about. We're not told, you know, what it relates to. We're only told that the curse is a curse that's coming from God, but it's a judgmental curse against what? Sin. Do you see that? It's a punishment for sin. And it's going to bring disaster upon thieves and perjurers and, you know, sinners. Okay, fair enough. That's all you're told about that. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, what is it? And he said, it is a basket that is going forth. He also said, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside the basket. All right. So, you'll be glad that you have someone here who can draw these things for you. So, you'll have a good idea of what is going on. So, the disc it's a flying disc and then there's a basket okay 
Here is a disc, a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. So I need to have a woman in there. And we know it's a woman because she's got real, well, unless she's from Mendocino County. Okay? Because she's, so there she is. She's, she's in the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. This is wickedness. So really should have a scowl on her face or something. Okay? I'm not sure how you do a scowl, but whatever. She's an unhappy woman because she's wicked. And what he does, he pushes her down inside the basket. Okay? So she has to go down there into there because she's wicked. Well, in fact, she's not just wicked, she's wickedness. Now, clearly, a flying, you know, a flying lid and a flying basket and a woman inside the basket, we, you know, we are probably in figurative areas here, yes? He thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. So, she's being sealed inside this basket. So, this lid's being put on top of it now. So, she can't get out. She's in here, even more unhappy than she was before. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings. Okay, so these are not ordinary women. For they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they, were lift, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So these are very strange women. Um, if this is figurative, then they're figurative women. But they may not be figurative. The reason I say they may not be figurative is that, well, why, why identify them as women with stork's wings? I mean, why can't they just be cherubs or just normal angels that, that do it? Why, why invent this new figure of speech for what they're going to do? So, Leave yourself open at least to the fact that these might be literal creatures. Why is that? That shouldn't surprise you. You might feel a bit uncomfortable with this, but it shouldn't surprise you too much because, after all, if you've read Ezekiel 10, you know, you should be prepared for this with the, um, the cherubims. And if you've read Isaiah 6, with the seraphim there, it's weird stuff. So it's very possible that these are literal beings, spiritual beings. And if that's the case, well, is this 
woman, literal wickedness? I don't know. I'm not sure about that. But something's going on here that we need to at least um, take seriously. So I said to the angel who talked with me, verse 10, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me to build a house for it in the land of Shinar. Where's the land of Shinar, folks? Excuse me? Babylon. Babylon is on the plain of Shinar. Yeah. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. If it's set on its base, the base comes off. Well, the lid comes off, okay, and probably it's set on it. So the the lid becomes the base. That's how I'm thinking. That's often the way that pots were in the ancient world. Their lids were also used as a base to put them on. If that's the case, then wickedness can pop out here at some point in Babylon. That's got, as far as I can see, nothing to do with Zechariah and his time. It doesn't mean it's not, it just means that if, if that's what it's talking about, you're at a dead end. Zechariah's coming from Babylon, so what does he care about wickedness going to Babylon? But you see, Babylon has a kind of an interesting history. Babylon, as we know from the book of Genesis, that's the place where um, they built that tower, remember? That's the place that God brought confusion in the languages. That was the place that, where human autonomy really came to its own in the making a name for themselves and forgetting about God and God scattering them. And um, Babylon also features later on in the Bible too. So, just leave yourself open to the fact that if this is eschatological, if this is referring to a far-flung day, maybe at some point wickedness that is which sits in Babylon now, on the plain of Shinar, this lid will be taken off and wickedness will come out of it in Babylon. That's possible at least. Just again, I'm not, I'm not saying you should take that interpretation, but what I'm saying is at least consider it as a possible interpretation. That way... Um, it, it does more for you, do you see? It doesn't just stop there with Babylon 500 years before Christ and who knows, by the time of Christ, Babylon really wasn't anything. Chapter 6. Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked and behold four chariots were coming from between two mountains and the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses and the second chariot black horses and the third chariot white horses and the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. 
Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are for spirits of heaven. So these are angelic spirits who go out from their station before the Lord of of all the earth. Now, again, is this figurative? Because many liberals will say this is figurative, but he didn't... His answer, the angel's answer was that they're spirits. They're spirits of heaven. The one with the black horses is going to the north country, the white are going after them, and the dappled are going toward the south country. Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. Okay, so they're doing you know, some of the jobs of uh, what was going on in chapter 1. And he said, go, walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, See, these who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. Okay. That's all we can say about that. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai, Tobiah and Jediah, who have come from Babylon, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Is all that straightforward? They're going to be given, he's going to be given a bunch of gifts. He's going to make a crown of gold out of it and he's going to put it on Joshua's head. Then speak to him, Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. Where did he last crop up? The branch. Chapter 3, which had to do with Joshua again. Do you remember? From, this, from his place he shall branch out. Does this mean that Joshua, the high priest, that he's the branch? No. And then it says this, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Well, I thought Zerubbabel laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. And... and uh, God has said, don't despise the day of small things. The branch is going to now do it. Yes, in case you didn't get it the first time, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. That is, who's them? Because he's talking about one guy. But he does two things, doesn't he? He's a, high, he's a priest, a high priest, but he also sits on the throne. So what's he combining? The priesthood and the kingship. And he brings... Uh, he's going to rule and he's going to build the temple and he's the branch. Do you want to look at these, some of these passages again that have to do with the branch? 
Do you want to look at one of them again, at least to remind you? Uh, let's go to, to uh, Jeremiah 33. <clears throat> Verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, I will put, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And then he talks about all of these covenants. Key passage in the Old Testament that. And so here's the branch and he's building the temple. This is not Zerubbabel's temple, folks. No king sat in Zerubbabel's temple. No king even ruled in Israel after the Babylonian captivity. What on earth is this talking about? The high priesthood got polluted in the middle of the second century BC and the kingship got polluted, uh, you know, half Idumean um, kingship through Herod and so on. And there were puppets of Rome anyway. So, who's this guy? Well, the guy who's the branch is the servant that's been spoken of in chapter 3, who, if he's the same person that's spoken of in Isaiah 11 and in... Um, in uh, Jeremiah 26 and 33, this is Christ. This is the the promised one. This is the special one. This is the servant. This is the one in chapter 46 who's going to combine, he's going to bring together the um, Israel, he's going to bless them and, and also the nations. Everything going to be brought together through him. And here, what we seem to be told is that the branch combines... the high priesthood and the crown. He combines the priestly covenant and the Davidic covenant. See that? If that's the case, you read that back onto... Isaiah, uh, sorry, Jeremiah 33, where it deals with all of these other covenants, including the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the priestly, even the Noahic gets a look in there. And of course, the new covenant does because it's new covenant blessing time, salvation. When you see salvation, that's new covenant. And it's not just salvation of the soul, it's restoration of environment too. This person, the branch, combines these two 
brings everything to fulfillment in himself. Now, pious Christians have said all the covenants are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And they're right. But they're not fulfilled in him now. And that's their great blunder. They say they've been fulfilled in him at his first coming. They weren't. Where's the emphasis falling here all the time? When is going to be salvation for Israel? After a time of mourning and tribulation. You're going to see it again in Zechariah. It's coming in the, especially chapters 10 through 14. So, this person becomes central to understanding when these things are going to happen. Because he's not sitting in any temple right now. Well, he's sitting in one in in heaven. But he's not sitting in any earthly temple right now with a crown on his head. Governing Israel. Not in the way that Isaiah foresees in chapter 11, where that's an earthly reign. The wolf lies down with the lamb. Well, that's not a problem in heaven. They've always been lying down together. But on earth, that is a problem right now. This is talking about Christ. This passage is, he says dogmatically, thumping the air. This passage is dealing with the last days. It is dealing with the eschaton. And that's what we're going to see as we move forward. And that's what starts to persuade me that some of these other things here are also dealing with that. And when you take them that way, you see that they are covenantally connected and they're adding to the picture, the covenantal picture that we've been building up and they start to enhance that picture instead of dropping you dead in uh, the desperation of a bunch of people coming back from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem in 5 whatever, 520 BC and all the trouble they had then. And they never reigned in that land again. They were, all, all, they were always reigned over. Chapter 8. I can't do chapter 7, I'm sorry, but chapter 8. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion. With great zeal, with great fervor, I am zealous for her. Well, he said that earlier. He said that in chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15. In that passage, he went on to say, I'm going to have mercy and he's going to rebuild his house. And he says, I'm going to comfort Zion. I said, that's probably dealing with the last times. But I did say, suspend your judgment. Here, he's saying the same thing. Let's see what he says, though. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion. We've seen that before. And dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth. All right. When has Jerusalem ever been known as the city of truth? When they killed Jesus? 
When? Ever. Never, never, never. City of truth. I mean, when we say truth, when God says truth, he doesn't mean telling the truth. He means truth in all of its fullness. Truth that that runs through the fabric of reality. Error being driven out completely. Light as opposed to darkness. That's what he means. The city of truth. This again drives us to the consummation of all things. This is the creation project. It's still in view. It's the main thing that's been in view all this time. But we're so impatient that we can't wait. Moses wrote a thousand years before Zechariah. Um, Adam lived, and remember the promise of the skull-crushing seed. Adam lived, what? 4,000, 5,000 years before that. I guess I'm a young earther. Uh, he wasn't a, he wasn't a knuckle-dragger, or neither did he marry a knuckle-dragger. He was a fully-formed human. Um, this creation project is still, we're still in it now. We're still in it. Once you, you really capture that, once you get into the, the doctrine of the church and you understand what's going on, you see yourself in the grand story of Scripture as, as moving, you're part of this movement. So Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Well, you know, that's what it says in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10. You know, nothing's going to harm anything in my holy mountain. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall sit again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand, because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Hold on a minute, that can't be true because when you get to heaven, everybody's 33, aren't they? No, this isn't talking about heaven. This is talking about a time when this world, which is designed to have boys and girls and old men and young men in it, but will have peace. And we read about that in Isaiah 65, 66. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days Will it also be marvellous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. And then it, uh, it, it moves on. And we're going to see that it's going to, we're going to start getting switchbacks, what I might call switchbacks, between great blessing and trouble. But they're going to be fused together. Anyway, uh, that's, that's coming. But this, this look what it goes on to say here. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. So it's not just Babylon here. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. When has that ever been? And then there's an exhortation of building the temple. Uh, Look at verse 11. Now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. For the seed of the prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give her increase. The heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these as blessing. This is again what we've seen about blessing on the land. Amos 9 and, and many places that deals with that. It's, it's, it's wonderful to read this because we get into some pretty dour stuff in a minute. So, you might as well enjoy this. Um, look at verse, look at verse um, 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of, one, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. There's people bidding each other to go on this pilgrimage. Well, if they went during Zechariah's time, they'd be pretty disappointed, wouldn't they? If they went during Jesus' time, they'd be very disappointed. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a light to the nations. And they will be. They will be. It's going to happen, literally. hasn't happened yet. Chapter 9. Well, we don't have time for chapter 9. I'd like to, but I can't. So, we have to move on. And go to chapter 11. Zechariah is told to act out a bunch of strange things. Yeah, Ezekiel was, act, was told to act out some weird things. Remember, he was to lay siege. He was to build a little model and lay siege to it, like toy soldiers and so on. God asked his prophets to do some strange things. And Zechariah's being asked to do some strange things here. Uh, this has to do with, with different things. It's, uh, false shepherds is the main thing. Uh, Let's look at verse 9 and read down. Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die and what, what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. 
that's not a really nice way to finish things off. And he's going to act out something here. I took my staff, beauty, because he'd been given a staff, and cut it in two, that I might break the covenant which I had made with all the peoples. You see, uh, earlier, there had been a, God had acted out in, a, in uh, the sense of, of Zechariah, this idea of Zechariah uh, standing for God. And so, Zechariah is going to break a covenant by breaking this beautiful rod. So it was broken in that day, thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Hmm. It's really important to get who the speaker is here. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Okay. Zechariah is acting out on behalf of God and he's following the instructions of God. Do you see that? He breaks that covenant. He breaks that staff. Then comes um, this uh, Zechariah saying, give me a, a price for you know what you've seen. And they, they weigh him out 30 pieces of silver. But then the, the interpretation is the, a goodly price that I, Jehovah or Yahweh, was priced by them. Who is priced at 30 pieces of silver? In Zechariah, who is priced for 30 pieces of silver? God. So, if Jesus is priced for 30 pieces of silver and the money is thrown to the potter, how literally are we to take this prophecy? Does that mean that Jesus is God? Because God in Zechariah, and that's the prophecy that's being fulfilled, God is the one who says, I was priced at 30 pieces of silver. Now you see the prophetic import of this. By the way, show that to a Jehovah's Witness someday. Okay? It's, it, they haven't changed it in their Bibles that I, I know of. That's still there. Jehovah is priced at 30 pieces of silver. I said, well, who, okay, so who's that talking about? Um, then something else weird happens here. Uh, well, verse 14, I cut my, uh, into my other staff bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Well, whatever that is about. Now he has to do something else. He has to act out something else, which is very strange. And the Lord said to me, next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. Do you have that? Foolish shepherd? Yeah. 
For indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that stand still, but he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. He's the very opposite of what a good shepherd should be. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock, a sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. And it kind of leaves it there. And that's why I'm going to leave it with you as well. If we have time, we might come back to that. Uh, But we might not. But do remember a shepherd who's coming up and he's ravaging Israel, the sheep. And he's going to receive a mark on his arm and on his right eye. All right. We've got to move on. Uh, We've just got enough time to do 12, 13 and 14 here. These are short chapters and and if you will just allow me to read and just punctuate them with a few remarks until we get to where we want to be. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, forms the spirit of man within him. This is God the creator then, yes? Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. That's not good stuff. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Well, hold on a minute. How can that happen? How can Jerusalem that's being attacked by all these people, how can it start to crush them? You see, there's two things going on here. There are people coming against Israel, but then there's some kind of Um, uh, pushback going on. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes in the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. That sounds good. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem, not in heaven. So again, there are riders, horses, there are, there are armed people on horses that are coming against Jerusalem and God is going to go out and smite them with blindness and madness. He's going to fight for Jerusalem. And then he's also going to give wisdom and ability to the governors in Jerusalem so that they can deal with the people, the onslaught. Verse 7. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Judah, of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. So he's going to give strength and power to the populace also. And the house of David shall be like God. 
and the angel of the Lord, like the angel of the Lord before them. He's going to give supernatural ability, it appears, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem when they're being attacked. At some point. It shall be that in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Well, when's that day? We don't know. But we do know that in Jeremiah 13, in Daniel 12, in um, Isaiah 63, Isaiah 61, we do know that at some point Israel and Jerusalem is going to come under tremendous attack just before God comes to rescue them. We've read that. So that could be what's being referred to here with a little bit more detail. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication and they will look on me whom they have pierced. Do you remember where that's shown? That's also that's in the book of Revelation. Yeah, speaking about the coming of Christ, Israel looking on them whom they have on him whom they pierced. Just as God is sold for 30 pieces of silver, God is also looked upon by the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him who, as one who grieves for a firstborn. Um, at this time when they see whoever this person is, who they pierced, they're going to mourn. Now, they're going to be given supernatural ability, but then there's going to be a time of mourning. We saw that before. We saw that in Ezekiel uh, 43. Remember? When they see the temple, they'll mourn. Do you remember that? And we saw it last week as well in Daniel. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. That's interesting. Especially as the, there is going to be a battle, according to the book of Revelation, in Ha-Mageddon. The mount, or the, and of course, valleys where mountains are, of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan, a prophet, by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. Well, hold on, we don't know who these families are, though, do we? Well, God does. God does. And there, there are descendants of David that are living today. They're not in line for the king because they don't come through the right line. But David had quite a few wives, you know, quite a few kids. So there are descendants from David still alive. There are descendants from Levi still alive and from the prophets. 
from Nathan. And then Shimei is mentioned. He's the one who threw stones and cursed David when he was walking out of Jerusalem. The family of Shimei by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself, their wives by themselves. There's a lot of detail there, but there's not much telling you when and what's going on. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. That's new covenant language. That's salvation language. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. That's been said before. In Hosea 2, for example. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. Obviously, the prophets are probably false prophets. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. Hold on a minute, what's going on there? That's a bit radical. But look at the context, folks. You should be used to this motif by now of persecution against Israel and then salvation for Israel. And it's not just 1948. It's real salvation. It's peace. It's the blessing. It's, it's, it's restoration for Israel. And it's covenantally bound. So, you have this tremendous battle and then you have this salvation in chapter 13 that's offered to Israel, obviously the beginning of the kingdom. Why would you need to have anyone prophesying in the kingdom age when Jesus is there ruling? And you're now in the kingdom age. What has happened when you're in the kingdom age? Fulfillment. All of the prophets have been fulfilled. All of the things that we've been looking at come to fulfillment when all of these things happen. What we might call the new covenant age for Israel or for the kingdom and the nations. That's the case. Somebody during that time who goes around prophesying, becomes a prophet, is obviously a false prophet. That's why his mother and father thrust him through. You say, well, that doesn't sound very nice and very peaceful and, and, you know, that doesn't sound, that's not my idea of bliss at all. But this isn't heaven. This isn't the new heavens and the new earth. This is the kingdom. And in the kingdom, Psalm 2, Christ rules with a rod of iron. Christ rules in righteousness and he goes after the wicked. Do you remember that? Because in the kingdom, even though we've, we've got more to say about this, but in the kingdom, there are not just um, people in the kingdom, boys and girls and men being happy and everything, but they're also sinners. The sinner who is 100 years old will die. That's in Isaiah 66 in a, in a um, kingdom passage. There are sinners. There's still sin on the earth. Does that 
during the kingdom age, when Jesus comes back, there's still sin. If you believe Revelation 20, at the end of that thousand years, Satan doesn't have any problem getting a great big army to march against Jerusalem. Where'd they all come from? Sin. But you'll have to wait for the next course for me to explain and go into that with you. Yes. But just note it, okay? So, um, then you have this strange prophecy in verses 5 and 6 about the person who's wounded in the house of his friends. And then it changes. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Well, that's obviously Christological. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. So this is going back to this time of trial again. I told you, it flip-flops. I will bring the one-third through the fire. They're not going to have a nice time of it. will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. That means they're going to go through it. Uh, Hosea chapter 2 and verse 23 has a similar, similar language there. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. That's wonderful because it's not just uh, that God is a God of the, of the group, of the crowd. He's the God of the individual. We're on the last chapter. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Now, Zephaniah says a lot about the day of the Lord. We haven't encountered that very much in the verses that I've been looking at, and that's for good reason. Uh, Joel also talks about it a lot, and we haven't looked at those two books very much. The day of the Lord, we'll look at it again in the New Testament But the day of the Lord seems to mean different things depending on the context. It can mean something awful that's God's action, providential action, uh, against sin or against some set of people at a particular time and place. But it always seems to have this uh, overarching view that looks into the future at a particular day. Particularly in Zephaniah, you'll, if you, Zephaniah 1 seems to have that idea. And uh, let's have a look at what it probably means here. The day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst and I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Well, okay, so that's the same thing that we've been talking about. All these nations coming against Jerusalem, that's the day of the Lord in this context. The city shall be taken. Well, yeah, because two-thirds of them are going to die. The horses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. And as he fights in the day of battle. We've already read this. Yeah, God is going to go and he's going to 
dis- you're going to strike them with madness. And he's going to give these, uh, these abilities to the people in Jerusalem. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. In that day, what day? And who's he? Well, we do know that Jesus went up from the Mount of Olives. And we do know, according to Acts 1.11, he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. If this is talking about Messiah, the branch, the Son of Man, the stone, Christ, if this is all the same person, this is the second coming. And it fits. Tribulation, and then God coming. At the beginning of the book, God says, I'm coming to dwell with you. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. Well, that hasn't happened. There are going to be, therefore, some topographical changes in the Jerusalem area when this person's feet touch the Mount of Olives. Let's look at the extent. Making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Jerusalem as we know it is going to be entirely changed. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. That's a a place, I think around, uh, I didn't put it here, it's about 12 miles uh, away from Jerusalem. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. What day? The day when this is happening. The day when Messiah's, if it is Messiah, when his feet touch the Mount of Olives. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. Nobody knows when it's going to be. Neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. It's going to be a strange time. In that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem. Obviously, after all this stuff's over. But again, you've got it again, haven't you? Bad stuff and good stuff. And they're, they're connected. Living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. Living waters, that means they've got life in them. Well, we know from Ezekiel, from the temple, that that waters come down from the temple and remember that Ezekiel, he wades into it and he gets deeper and deeper and he sees that the waters... Uh, we didn't get a chance to see all of this, it's in chapter 47, I think, uh, that when it, it reaches the marshes and so on, it, it, they, they spring into life. 
it has this, this revivifying effect on anything that it touches. The Lord shall be king over all the earth. Do you believe that? Not in some daft spiritual sense that you say he's reigning up there now and he's the king over all the earth now. What good is that? Let's be honest, folks. It doesn't matter a whit whether he's the king up there or not. It's still not a nice place down here. Do you see that? It makes no difference, theologically or anything else, saying he happens to be reigning up there, apart from the fact that he's not doing a very good job. But it does make a lot of difference if you believe this and say, no, he's not reigning now, but he will. The Son of Man is given the dominion of the nations. Daniel chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. That makes sense. This makes sense then. We don't have to, to craft frilly little sermons um, about God ruling over the nations in heaven. So what? I mean, I mean that. So what? Is that going to stop ISIS doing what it's doing? Burning people alive and so on? So What? Or it means something much better than that. Something more meaningful than that. It actually means what it says. No, he's not reigning now, but he will. After this time of great trouble for Israel, God will reign. He'll be king over, the all, over all the earth. There, you see, that's Isaiah 11 again. That's Daniel 7 again. That's Daniel 2 again. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. One God, one um, deity. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up. Do you see this? There's a plain, but Jerusalem is going to be raised up. And inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hanamel to the king's wine presses. These are actual places in ancient Jerusalem. The people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall dwell safely. There it is again, dwell safely. Whenever you see that in these prophetic passages, it's talking about this new covenant time. Um, Ezekiel's temple was on a mountain. It was on a mountain. And it was really big. Too big to go on Mount Zion today. But if you have topographical changes in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem raised up, not too big for that. The Bible does explain itself. I don't know how many people, and I'll try to, to do this with my, in my nice, casual, calm way, I don't know how many scholars I have heard read this, oh sorry, read Ezekiel 40 through 48 and say, that temple couldn't possibly go on Jerusalem. That's impossible. It must be spiritual. Well, haven't they read this? But trouble is, you see, they spiritualize this as well. 
That's the trouble. You see, they're never going to come to an understanding of the Bible because they won't let it say what it says. But if you let it say what it says, you know that Ezekiel's temple has has a place here. Moreover, Zechariah goes on to mention it. Let's see. This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Don't forget about those people. We're flip-flopping again. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouth. You know, it's like Indiana Jones in the first movie, isn't it? Worldwide. Or at least around Jerusalem. Um, Earlier, if you remember, um, I should have marked it here, but you, you had a similar thing going on. Where was it? Where God was striking people and they, they had this kind of plague going on. Where was it? I can't remember now. I was going to mark it. Do you remember where that was? No, I'm not seeing it. No, that's... Uh, it's. Earlier than that, I think. Uh, I think it's chapter six. No, I'm not. I'm not seeing it. It's in there somewhere, and I, I should have marked it when I when I saw it. Um, I can't remember where it was now. I'm sorry. But you have this a similar kind of thing, not as detailed earlier on in the book. Which, by the way, this I hope you can see there are themes from the beginning of the book that come through at the end of the book. Like God dwelling in Jerusalem and coming to Jerusalem and the temple being built and everything. That's, that's why I think the earlier portions of the book also are eschatological. Uh, scholars, critical scholars say Zechariah is really two books split in half. It has two It has that kind of structure, that's true, but it's not two books, they relate to each other. Uh, Moving on here to the end. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver and apparel in great abundance. Israel's going to spoil the nations again. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. That's what's going to happen. That's how they're going to die. So the Lord is going to go and fight for Jerusalem. And he's going to send this plague out. Not until after Jerusalem's been overrun. And a lot of people killed and a third of them go through, as it were, the fire. There's going to be a, a, a terror, it's going to be a terrible time, but God will eventually come and fight for them. Now, the only question is, is he going to fight for them in person or is, in some kind of standoff way and just kind of smite them from heaven? Not completely sure, but it could well be that when Jesus, if that is Jesus, and I think it is, 
in 14.4, when he comes back, he's going to do it. And if, he's, if that's him, he's also going to start squashing people as well, stamping on them. Isaiah 63, if you want to look at that. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, because a lot of them are going to be killed, shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. Hold on. They're going to go up to Jerusalem to worship the king? The king's going to be the Lord of hosts? The king's going to be God? This king, verse 9, yeah, God is going to really, when he says I'm going to come to Jerusalem and dwell there, he really means it. And keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. So there is still going to be sin when the king's reigning. And he's going to reign with a rod of iron. We'll see this in the New Testament. In the family of Egypt, if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they will have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep, keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Pretty good incentive. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe Egypt are going to be the big transgressors. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Uh, Ezekiel 43.12 says... Sorry. This is the law of the temple. The whole area surrounding the mountaintop is most holy. Behold, this is the law of the temple. Remember that? Holiness to the Lord. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices... Hold on a minute. Haven't you read the book of Hebrews? How can this be the second coming? That that spoils it now. We know we're going to have to spiritualize all of this. Here we are coming to the end of the Old Testament and Henry's led you astray because how can we have people at the second coming of Christ or after the second coming of Christ and and the kingdom age coming to the house of God, which is obviously the temple, and sacrificing. And by the way, according to chapter 6, Where's he sitting? He's the king, but what else is he? He's the high priest. How can he be the high priest and the king and God? Well, Jesus is the high priest, isn't he? Remember that when we get to the book of Hebrews, okay? Don't read Hebrews or don't go, don't be so quick to read Hebrews as if it's a church epistle. Yes, every pot in in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall be no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So, Canaanites didn't belong in the land. They didn't belong in Jerusalem. It's God's 
land. It's God's city. He's taken possession of it. A great deal of Zechariah, I would argue, is again giving us this detail, more detail to the picture that we've been looking at in these two courses. God is really focused in the way that most Christians aren't in, at, in the end times. Now, I'm not saying that we should all write books with fiery dragons and, and uh, lunar eclipses on them. Like, you know, so many eschatological books and horrid, horrid things, you know, that come out and pulp fiction are like. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that when God starts something off at creation, he aims to finish it off, okay, in kingdom. And this is the creation project and that's the consummation of the prophetic um, ideal of the kingdom and the covenants. Do you see that? Hope. Hope. Your hope my hope is built on something that hasn't happened yet. The hope of Christians, two, well, nearly 2,000 years ago, is built on a hope that hasn't happened yet. Do you believe it's going to happen? Christ is going to come back, take you to be with him. Well, Israel has hope too. centered around the same person as well. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful picture. Uh, I better stop here. Remember, um, read Malachi, please, chapters 3 and 4. Malachi 3 and 4 for next week. And did anyone, was anyone godly and spiritual enough to do what I asked last time and, and write down all of these different things. You've got to remember what I wanted specifically was something like this but with more detail. Have you, have you still got that? Okay, so I want something like that but it's bigger because we've, we've because we have um, maybe it can be a group venture. Because we've, since we did this, we've got a lot more information. And that's what I want. So you can, we can pass it out.